Well, thanks to Gary and all the folks up here leading worship for us. I appreciate y'all, and it's a joy to worship with God's people. And uh, it's a joy to worship with all of you this morning. And uh, thanks, Scott, for, for that prayer. Um, we have spent some time over the, the past, gosh, I don't know how long, uh, we were in Colossians every so often, and, um, and, and this is kind of a one more added on to that. Originally, I was thinking about doing this as three sermons, but uh, we decided to go ahead and do it as one sermon, um, and it's the letter to Philemon, and so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, let me go ahead, and, if you want to go ahead and open there, um, it's... Um, just before Hebrews, toward the end of Paul's letters, it's a short letter, and so we'll be covering the whole thing this morning. And let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, thank you for how you have made a people for yourself. And you call people out of darkness into light, and you bring what has been broken back to wholeness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that reflected in the story of Philemon. Help us to see the goodness of redemption that you bring in Christ and how that has implications for our lives. So help us to rejoice in the goodness of the gospel this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> the French novel, Les Mis, uh, you may be familiar with that. I could try to say it in French. I never took French. Les Miserables, something like that. I don't know. Um, is uh, the story of redemption in the life of this, uh, there's actually a lot of characters. In the, in the novel version, there's a lot of vignettes and it interweaves the stories of all these characters together. But in the life of Jean Valjean, it's a story of redemption. And there's this one sequence, and some of you may have seen the movie a few years back, uh, where uh, Jean Valjean has been released from prison, and uh, he steals some things from this bishop. And the police catch him and drag him back to the bishop, and he fears the condemnation that he is about to receive, right? Because he's especially vulnerable because he's on parole. And so he knows that the weight, full weight of the law could come down upon him. And the bishop does something completely unexpected. The bishop shows grace toward Jean Valjean. And uh, in, the, in the musical version, the lyrics go like this. Yet, why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. And then later on it says, one word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? And so in the sequence, we see forgiveness and grace change a life. And then throughout the rest of the story, you see how that plays out in other people's lives as Jean Valjean interacts with others and it affects their lives as well. It was not what he deserved. 
the bishop was willing to sacrifice some material wealth in order to show forgiveness towards Jean Valjean. And so in this story, we see peacemaking and forgiveness and reconciliation played out all at once. And that then echoes through the rest of the story. And so the letter from Paul to Philemon has some similar themes. It's not identical, but there's some similar themes there. It's a testimony to the power of God to change lives. So it's, it's a short and very personal letter that Paul writes to Philemon. And as we come to the letter, not only is there a historical connection with Colossians, there's also a thematic connection. You know, we titled the Colossians series, The Christ-Centered Life. And in Colossians 3, verse 3, it reads, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the second half of Colossians in particular focuses on what a transformed life in Christ looks like. It gives us a template for how should we, we should deal with relationships. And Philemon gives us this very specific real-life example of how we should deal with a certain kind of conflict in relationships where we're called to live out the Christ-centered life. So today we're going to consider this letter to Philemon from Paul and Timothy from three different perspectives. One is the perspective of Onesimus and the call to reconciliation. And the second is to Paul and the call to peacemaking. And then the third is to Philemon and the call to forgiveness. So there's strong evidence of a connection between Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. They mention the same people. Ephesians and Colossians have, in particular, similar themes to one another. They're very general letters written uh, to people in the same geographic area. And all three letters were carried by Tychicus. And Philemon and Colossians, in particular, mention Onesimus. So go look at Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So, so we've already seen Onesimus mentioned back in Colossians. Now, Colossians and Ephesians are some of the most general letters we have from Paul's writings as far as their, their theme and, and purpose. But this letter to Philemon is different. It's very specific. It addresses a specific set of issues. And so it's constructed like a typical letter. Let's go ahead and read Philemon together. As, as I read it, I want you to think about the role that each of these people play, Onesimus, Paul, and Philemon. Okay. Paul, as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love 
and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own, owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Right, so it is constructed like a typical letter. There's this greeting in the first few verses, followed by a prayer and thanksgiving. And then there's this kind of the meat of the letter section. And, uh, and I've divided it here into occasion and admonition, but it's basically getting to the, the heart of the matter. And then there's this closing at the end of the letter. Um, it, so it matches the, the form of a typical New Testament letter. Now, the the letter is written from both Paul and Timothy during one of Paul's imprisonments, and it was to be read to the whole church in Archippus' house. And so we see some contrast here. It's a personal letter written both to Philemon but also to a local congregation. It's both from Paul and Timothy, yet it seems to be primarily from Paul. And it was likely added to a batch of letters to Ephesus and Colossae in order to address this specific situation, right? There, there are several different interpretations of the background of the letter. The, the traditional view states that Onesimus was a slave, and the, uh, the letter itself calls him out as a slave. But other views focus more on how Onesimus sought out Paul for mediation or a need for sanctuary, 
uh, because he had stolen something of value from Philemon. The specifics don't change the substance of, of the letter, though. Right? The, the direct situation described in the letter gives us plenty of application. And, but something was taken. Restoration was needed between Onesimus and Philemon. And the issue of slavery is raised when dealing with Philemon. And we can see from the way the New Testament addresses um, life and the value of individuals in general, there's this focus on the individual is created in God's image. And history shows that as Christianity grew, it impacted social institutions in the first few centuries. As people came to Christ, hearts were changed and social institutions were impacted by that change. It wasn't an armed revolution but changed advance one person at a time under a new set of ideals. And we could certainly talk more about that offline, but a new set of ideals are a major theme here in Philemon as well. Right? Paul is pointing at the heart of the matter, right? the, the Christ-centered life, and how that's played out in our lives. So let's look first at Onesimus and this call to reconciliation. Right, some modern scholars do doubt whether Onesimus was a slave, and the letter, but we have to remember the letter does mention him in that way. And there are some questions concerning the specific circumstances and how they're to be taken. Uh, but somehow he made his way to Paul. Right? Uh, some, you know, some folks think, well, he just ran into Paul. <laughs> Others feel that he must have sought Paul out for mediation or help. Um, so let's go through some of the broad brushstrokes so we have some context. First, Onesimus had wronged someone, and that someone was likely Philemon. And though there was a view that argues that he actually wronged Archippus, whether he had run away or stolen something of value, he had wronged someone in the eyes of the Roman law. It was most likely Philemon. Okay. Second, Onesimus appeals to Paul. The the view that uh, you know, somehow Onesimus ran into Paul in Rome, um, that, does, uh, that would be miraculous, and certainly uh, God can't work miracles. Um, but it's more likely that he knew of Paul and sought him out. Whether for aid or as a mediator or for repentance, he came into contact with Paul, and Onesimus came to faith in Christ. Right? So there was, there was a major thing that happened when he made contact with Paul. And that changed everything. So Onesimus was first reconciled to God. Paul says that he came to become Onesimus' father while he was in chains, while Paul was in chains. In Philemon 9, says, Yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So he was a son in the faith, and Paul counted Onesimus as a son in the faith. And that's more than becoming a mentor or a guide. Paul is saying that Onesimus had placed his faith in Christ, and so through his mentoring and interaction with Paul in Rome, Onesimus believed the good news, and then look how Paul continues in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, 
sending my very heart, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the nature of the relationship had changed. He was now a dearly beloved brother in Christ. A beloved brother is one who's been adopted into the family of God. And so there's new life here. Philemon had been, uh, who had also been brought to new life, had this common shared experience with Onesimus. They both experienced reconciliation with God the Father. And now Onesimus is a beloved brother. So this changes the nature of their relationship. There was a new orientation to what was important in Onesimus' life. And there's a new perspective on God and his kingdom. And there's a new relationship between this reconciled person and the creator. So Paul also plays off of this meaning of Onesimus' name, which means useful. It could also be rendered profitable or helpful. But you get the idea. Now that Onesimus is a beloved brother, the nature and purpose of his life has changed such that he can now be useful to the kingdom of God, to Christ's church. And so Onesimus was then reconciled to Philemon. So it's clear that Onesimus wanted to seek reconciliation and that he was willing to go back. He was willing to go back and do the right thing. He went back to Colossae. And, you know, in Lemiz, Jean Valjean is dragged back to the bishop. But here, Onesimus goes back of his own accord. So we see this life transformed and the relational results of that transformation. Right? Once Onesimus had right standing before God, it then impacted his horizontal relationships. So if you're not willing to seek reconciliation in your own life, we need to ask why. What is preventing it? You know, search your heart. Make sure that you're not holding on to bitterness some fear of being willing to reconcile. You've probably heard the quote, and I even looked it up to see who first quoted this. I think this is one of those that we'll never know. Uh, Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die. There's truth there. People who hold to bitterness intend to inflict harm on the other person, but they end up damaging their own soul. So Onesimus may have shown up later in recorded history as well. So it's just a footnote that the church father Ignatius in a letter mentions an Onesimus as bishop of Ephesus, and that would be the same geographic region a few decades later. There may be more to his life story. But what is significant is that Onesimus returned to the area of Colossae and faced those who he had wronged, and he sought reconciliation. And so as Christians, we're also called to reconciliation. Reconciliation is doing the right thing. It's patient work, and it builds rather than it tears down. But we have to be honest, real conflict is messy. 
You could stand up here and give platitudes about what reconciliation should look like, but we need to be realistic about this. Real life situations are messy. Even in ideal circumstances, reconciliation is hard work. You have to overlook offenses. You have to see people in terms of who they're called to be and not just in terms of what they have done. You have to call them to live consistently. And when they sin, when they act out, when they attack you, when they attack others, you have to call them to accountability. You have to protect those who are the, the subject of those attacks. And you have to call the aggressor to put off their old way of life and put on Christ. So Onesimus, according to Paul in the letter, seems to have had this experience of Christ and some level of repentance in his life. Proverbs 3, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19, 11, a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. You know, a first step may be willing to overlook offenses, small offenses, but overall, be willing to do the right thing. Be quick to seek reconciliation. Right? Be willing to change. Do your best not to think the worst of the other person. If there's more serious rift, be willing to seek peace in the midst of conflict. And that may take time. That may take additional work. And, and that's why we see in this situation people um, contributing in different ways. Right? Paul contributes as a peacemaker. So let's talk a little bit about Paul and peacemaking. I want to call out one phrase that Paul says here. He says, charge that to my account. Think of what Paul is doing when he says that. Charge that to my account. Right? He had a reputation and a good name to bear the burden of payment. And Philemon could have tried to exact the full payment from Onesimus himself but Onesimus would not have the credit to pay for it. It would have cost him greatly, but Paul says, charge that to my account. Have you ever been in a situation where taking the weight of an offense would be very costly for someone else, but it would cost you very little? Would you be willing to stand in the gap and advocate for someone else? That's what Paul's doing here, and in doing so, he's actually reflecting Christ. Because that's what Christ does for us. Christ is our advocate before the Father. Now, Paul is advocating before Philemon, for Onesimus. So this whole letter testifies to this, but it shines through in this one line in particular. Charge that to my account. Peace would not have been personally beneficial to Paul in a worldly sense. It wasn't even in the same town. It may have even cost him something but it was worth it for him to be a peacemaker, and that's a reflection of Christ. Going back to the story of Lemiz, that's the role that the bishop was playing, but he was playing both peacemaker and forgiver in that story. But we too are called to peacemaking. So are you willing to seek peace even when you feel wronged? Or are you willing to seek peace even when it doesn't directly benefit you in a situation? What makes it hard for us to seek peace? I think we would have a variety of different reasons. 
Sometimes the issue is just different perspectives on a situation. People see things differently. Sometimes one side is unrepentant and continues to cause harm. Sometimes one side's not willing to come to the table and make peace. But if you're seeking to repair relationships, you have to stop the bleeding. And if one side is still wielding the knife, you can't get very far. But true reconciliation assumes that all parties are willing to change and are ready to reconcile. So there must be repentance. And so we see some level of repentance in Onesimus. But this is bold work, peacemaking. It's brave work. It's not for the faint of heart. We're not talking about something that is just uh, easy and soft and, and fluffy bunny you know, platitudes here. Right? If we're talking about gospel transformation, we're talking about the kind of change that redirects the whole orientation of a person. It changes their whole approach to life It's not natural to be a peacemaker. Just look at our society. It's more polarized than ever before. As people leave churches for secularism and as our society turns to critical philosophies, the end result is making war against every person at every level. Carl Truman noted recently in an article in First Things that in our day, morality is tied to the fashion of the moment. It's fickle. Traditionally, morality is something that is anchored, right? It has some substance. It's fixed. But in our society, what was acceptable five years ago was now deconstructed as something that is dangerous. And what we see is in... In the world around us, people eat their own. They devour each other. And this kind of conflict reflects the fallen world. It's reactionary and polarized. It's inherently disordered and destabilizing. If you live by the sword, you certainly will not live in peace. Proverbs 3.29 says, Don't plan any harm against your neighbor for he trusts you and lives near you. Don't accuse anyone without cause when he has done you no harm. Don't envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the devious are detestable to the Lord, but he is a friend to the upright. There are those who attack as a way of life. They see the patient person as weak or as a target. They justify their actions as bold and violence as a virtue. A culture that pursues violence without the check of character and maturity will be destructive. So a cursory look at Psalms and Proverbs reveals that an appetite for violence is portrayed as wicked. From the fruit of his mouth, a person will enjoy good things, but the treacherous people have an appetite for violence. Proverbs 13. A Proverbs 16, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Watch your appetites. It's one thing to be bold, but we must act in wisdom. And James speaks to this. In James chapter 3, verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his words in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is urging us on to maturity. It's easy to be angry. It's much harder to do the patient work of peace. So it takes more strength to be the patient person. Right? Anger is a skill that we're born with. Do I have any agreement from the parents? No, I don't know. Okay, maybe. Maybe you haven't experienced that. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> right? Some justify anger by pointing even to something like Jesus turning over tables. And when people emphasize one aspect of Christ, what they're doing is they're reading into Scripture. They're creating a Christ in their own image rather than conforming themselves to the image of Christ. So certainly he did turn over tables. But if you think puffing up and acting out is mature manhood, then go read what Paul says about mature manhood in Ephesians 4, 4.13. not going to do that right now. I'll let you all do that later. The, the, the point there is toward, uh, towards maturity in Christ, leading to unity. Okay. So don't get your virtues confused. Right? We have to be brave and strong and to stand up to do what is right, even when it's hard. But so long as it's up to us, that means we seek peace. Paul was bold to stand in the face of opposition. He was brave in the face of death. He was not afraid of mobs or rulers or wild beasts. But he labored not to run in vain. He labored that the saints would not turn away from the gospel that binds them together. It binds them to God. So in Ephesians, Paul is the one who says we should be eager to preserve the bond of unity. And in Colossians, Paul is the one who says, above all things, put on love. And in Philemon, he plays the role of peacemaker among brothers. In the Gospels, you see how Jesus gives an agenda for a new people, a transformed people who will seek the will of God in their own hearts and lives. Ben has been preaching from Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The sons of God are peacemakers. And this comes from new hearts changed by the Spirit. The peace of Christ ruling our hearts, enables us to be peacemakers. And Paul is demonstrating that with, as he writes to Philemon. You, too, are called to be a peacemaker. And this is part of being conformed to the image of Christ. 
So Paul says, charge that to my account. All right, let's talk about Philemon and this call to forgiveness. So Paul gives thanksgiving for Philemon's faith. He gives an encouragement and makes an appeal to Philemon's conscience. He wants to see Philemon respond in a Christian way to the situation. He briefly references his own personal authority in a few places. For instance, in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, Paul recognized that he had a claim to apostolic authority, yet he preferred to appeal to the conscience. He was making a moral appeal to do the right thing. Right? So some have claimed that this mention of authority is a form of manipulation. And Paul is using a very intricate form of, uh, of argumentation in the letter in order to put a little extra oomph behind the appeal. I think Paul is encouraging a culture within the church where we challenge ourselves to live in light of the gospel. New hearts, a new identity, and that leads to new actions. No matter what the Roman law said, he encouraged Philemon toward forgiveness and reconciliation with a brother in Christ. So the letter, we also need to point out that the letter is addressed to the church, right? You, you might expect, oh, this is all to Philemon, right? Well, it, that seems kind of crazy in our day, that, that it would also be addressed to the church. Philemon was accountable to the local church. He was likely wealthy compared to the average Christian in Colossae. He likely had the authority of the Roman law behind him. As the head of a household, he would have had great latitude to do whatever he wanted with those in the household. He would be able to guide their affairs and make decisions on their behalf. And yet, in Paul's view, he was constrained to do the right thing in the eyes of God. He was also constrained by the accountability of the local church to fulfill the law of Christ. So that accountability is toward fulfilling the law of Christ. So by addressing the letter to the church and also this hint at personal authority, Paul introduces another question for us, this issue of the, um, the individual following after Christ versus accountability. In our day, we stress individualism hard. In times past, there was more of a stress on accountability to the group. You were part of something bigger than yourself. We have to ask, do we even know how our own cultural moment impacts us? How we would respond to the kind of accountability that Paul just assumes as a background of the letter. Let's be honest, right? Christians who we may think of as mature believers, they switch churches sometimes on matters of preference or uh, maybe perceived benefit or a minor conflict. Right? Those who may be in more serious sin may drop out of attendance rather than even being lovingly called to maybe even just put aside a grudge. They would rather be ruled by their bitterness. And I'm not trying to just be, um, be harsh here. I'm trying to just be realistic that we do see this happening, right? Someone may... Um, be wanting just to point out how bitterness is devouring someone. 
right? And, and the response is to withdraw from that. Um, so for some, even the idea of responsibility to the group is a problem. They say, I'm going to decide for myself. You can't tell me what to do. Right, so this, this affirmation of what you're going to do becomes the highest moral good in a postmodern society that we live in. So why am I pointing this out? I'm not trying to spend too much time on it, but it's the air that we breathe in the day that we live in. We may not realize how much it surrounds us and our friends and our neighbors and everybody we interact with. But this letter was written under a very different set of assumptions. Philemon was accountable to the local church. And so he was called to do what was right in the eyes of God. So there's a difference between what was legally permissible in the Roman Empire and what was right to do. But Paul appealed to Philemon to do the right thing. Remember, the law of Christ is fulfilled by new covenant people who've been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, and then that changes how they respond to life situations. Philemon, as a Christian, was to live by this higher standard. So his ability to follow through in genuine forgiveness is enabled by new life in Christ. And as a Christian, he was accountable to the local church in that matter. And you too are called to forgiveness. In Proverbs 21.10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Colossians 3 Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. And so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we're called to lean into forgiveness. So look at that call to forgiveness, right? That we, we, we saw that in, in Colossians 3, right? We've been forgiven, so we're called to forgive. Um, the story of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18 has the same theme to it. New life in Christ should result in a willingness to be forgiven, or sorry, to forgive as we have been forgiven. And this is how the gospel and hearts that are changed by the Spirit of God impact lives as we interact with one another. So what do we mean by forgiveness? The word forgiveness is used sometimes in different ways. Where today, folks sometimes talk about a forgiveness that's an attitude of forgiveness that is separate from transacted forgiveness. And most of the time when when scripture is talking about forgiveness, it's talking about this fully transacted reconciliation of relationship. And so it's, it's pointing more towards this mending of relationship. The reality is that mending a relationship is much harder than just one person having an inclination towards forgiveness. Because if the other person is not there, then you can't really transact that, that re- reconciliation. And so an attitude of forgiveness requires just the forgiver. But fully transacted forgiveness requires both parties. 
So in the New Testament, when forgiveness is mentioned, it's assuming this more holistic approach that includes reconciliation. And it was assuming that the other person is willing to change, is willing to come and ask for forgiveness. And that was the case with Onesimus. His life had been changed as he had trusted in Christ. And now, with Paul's encouragement, he comes back to Philemon to make things right and to seek reconciliation. So there's this connection between reconciliation and peacemaking and forgiveness. All three point to one another. The point of application for us is that we are called to be people who seek to forgive to know how we have been forgiven in Christ and then to reflect that in our forgiveness of others who we interact with. However, the full reconciliation can only come when the offending party is willing to change and seek out that reconciliation. So repentance is walked out in the life of the offending party. This should be expected by somebody who is in Christ. And that's where these three come together, peacemaking, reconciliation, and forgiveness. They're all facets of mended relationships from different angles. A new covenant people fulfilling the law of Christ as they walk together. So it'd be hard for any one of these to stand on their own. But from different vantage points, they all blend into one another. Peacemaking, reconciliation, and forgiveness are things that, they're roles that each of us are called to at different points in time. And in Christ, we're called to lean into them. Whether we are called to be the peacemaker, the one seeking reconciliation, or the one called to forgive. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right, mended relationships are this mark of maturity in Christ. But true peace comes to us in Christ. So if, if you have not received forgiveness in Christ, this may sound foreign to you. Right, the gospel applies reconciliation in our own life. Christ came to be the peacemaker on our behalf even when we were not seeking it. And yet, we who did not deserve God's forgiveness can receive forgiveness in him. So if you do not know that forgiveness, then look to Christ today. And seek forgiveness that is found in him. And be reconciled before the Father. That is the good news, that he offers us that reconciliation. It's also a way that we are called to reflect Christ together. This is the Christ-centered life. If your life is hidden with Christ and God, if you have been raised to new life, then you are called to this. May reconciliation, peacemaking, and forgiveness be marks of the grace of God in our lives together. And may they characterize us as a church family. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the testimony of your word. I pray that you would help us to 
seek genuine reconciliation. Help us to be people that are willing to be changed. Give us hearts that are willing to be encouraged and challenged by one another. And that goes for all of us. Help us to have tender hearts that are willing to follow you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.